And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, possibly on one of our wonderful community radio partners across the country, or maybe on iTunes or off the website. Regardless of where you're listening to us from, welcome to this week's show. We are going to be talking about halfway into the show with Rachel Kramer, who is the wildlife uh, wildlife trafficking expert at the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, We talked to her uh, yesterday, actually. Um, uh, as uh, about uh, the illegal wildlife trade, what some of the, uh, the damage that we've been doing uh, to sort of uh, iconic species and just the general ecosystem uh, and, you know, more or less wiping out all life on Earth. But, uh, hey, it's not us, so that's fine. So we're going to be talking to Rachel Kramer, get into a little bit more detail about the actual damage that some of these illicit uh, trade has been doing on the ecosystem and the global um, global trade of illicit markets. That's coming up about halfway through the show. However, right now, we're going to be talking to uh, Deborah, and I'm, I apologize I did not confirm this ahead of time, uh, Leipziger? Very good. That's right. Awesome. That's Thank you so much for joining us. Deborah is on the uh, on the phone line now. Uh, we're going to be talking to her, and she uh, was uh, has a master's of public policy from uh, Columbia, Columbia, as well as a bachelor of arts from Manhattan College, and uh, advises companies, governments, and UN agencies on corporate uh, responsibility and sustainability issues. Uh, we are here today, or we have her on the phone today, to talk a bit, uh, in part, about her upcoming book, The Corporate Responsibility Codebook. Welcome to the Green Majority, Deborah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So there's a number of items here that you'd uh, uh, asked the, the, to speak about, and I, I, I think I'm very, I'm very interested in talking about all of them, but I think I would like to start with uh, a little bit about the integration of social and environmental issues. And this is a conversation I, ju- I just want to preface before we, we go to you. Um, we've talked about oh, quite a bit on the show, and, uh, and I've attended a number of uh, events here at the Toronto Sustainability Speaker Series. Uh, Brad Zarnett, who runs that speaker series, has been on the show before. Um, and there seems to be sort of two resolutions to this issue sort of in, in general, and it's sort of uh, one of them is sort of from within uh, these uh, sort of companies, and the other one is sort of the, the global picture. So I just want to sort of acknowledge for the listeners as well that we're going to sort of talk about the, some of the bigger picture stuff uh, about how this plays out on, on a world stage a little bit towards the end of the interview. But for now, can you just talk about from, from within the point of view of a major company that you might be advising, what does the integration of social and environmental value, uh, issues and values mean? Well, I think for a very long time, the issues have been very separate, and I see more and more integration around issues like water as a human right, for example, and that brings together uh, human rights issues and environmental issues. And I also see uh, around gender, thinking about the role of of women in the environment and and human rights in the environment, um, labor in the environment, and and so the codes uh, that are emerging, are reflecting this, this integration of both social and environmental. And I think the vocabulary is also changing to to think about uh, both elements at at once. I was just visiting Natura in Brazil, the cosmetics company, and and they are talking, for example, about social biodiversity, that it's not enough to promote biodiversity, but we also need to promote uh, the people and the communities that support uh, the rainforest and, and these habitats. So very interesting uh, time that that we're experiencing, and I think uh, a challenge for companies to to integrate social and environmental into their policies and and frameworks. 
And Deborah, I was actually uh, I was actually at an event uh, a couple of weeks ago um, where they were uh, talking about um, it was it was it wasn't in an environmental context, but they were talking about um, sort of how the relationship between uh, a lot some of these big companies and some of the outreach work that they'd done has has very much changed over uh, the recent uh, history over the last you know, five, ten, fifteen uh, years, where uh, there used to be uh, much more of a sort of a concept of of uh, you know NGOs and local groups that were receiving some of these uh, funding and donations and support. Uh, had very much the attitude where they were sort of, you know, thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. Now give us your money and sort of go away and let us do our work. Um, and that this, this is sort of changing now and that this is, there is more sort of direct back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about what the, about that, about this sort of changing evolution of the actual relationship between, you know, what, what types of companies and what type of support they're uh, providing and how the relationship with the people they're actually helping has changed? That is a great question, and I think it, it really points to the fact that the, the boundaries of, of companies are changing, and I think companies are, are really reevaluating their, their role in, in society. And, and the, the last book that I worked on um, that came out last year, Creating Social Value, really reflects that and, and looks at ways in which companies can create social value in addition to to making products and, and creating profits, but also adding uh, benefits to society. And so I think there are a lot of terrific examples of that. Um, the rise of, of B corporations is, is a great example of that, of companies with a social mission. And we now have some 1,300 of those around the world. So I think that that is uh, an important trend and phenomenon and, and companies thinking about ways in which they can bring value to society. One of my favorite examples is, is the company Grayston that makes brownies for uh, Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And so they, their mission is to combat poverty in uh, this part of this poor part of um, uh, Yonkers where they're based. And, and they do that um, by um, employing people who, who perhaps have never had a job or who, who were formerly homeless and, and providing them with the infrastructure to allow them to have a job. So that might be access to affordable housing, to health care, um, to child care if they have children. So some really interesting developments, I think, around that. I think you're absolutely right about the, the role of, of, of companies um, in communities starting to to change and evolve and grow I think that's a that's a really interesting uh, um, and a, I think an important uh, point there was the sort of as you were saying the rise of both uh, social enterprises and and B corps and, uh, and and I want to ask you a little bit about that but I, but first I'd like you to just sort of maybe outline for for the listener that these maybe are are new terms uh, for sure. what is a social enterprise and then and then what is a B corp and how are both of those different than what we think of as a traditional corporation so very good question, and a social enterprise is a company that has a social mission as well as a, a kind of business bottom line uh, imperative. Um, and so Grayson is a great example of a social enterprise, and they've been around for, for 30 years. Um, they're also a B Corp. Um, but you could also have a, a social enterprise um, that, um, you know, has has more of a, a social uh, benefit that isn't necessarily geared towards um, uh, making a profit as well. So there's, I think the, the terms are, are used uh, in, in interesting ways, but um, we're, we're creating these new types of, 
of institutions uh, that that reflect um, the needs of of society and and how companies can can fill those needs. And one of the things that I've sort of um, the, one of the reasons why I found the just even the concept of of B corporations as a classification it's a, as the way that you would sort of register uh, what type of business that you are are operating is of course as you said you know these you, as you described it as sort of these are businesses with you know social social values they would wish to enact through their business. Um, it is not necessarily, although I think some of us might sarcastically imply in some cases this is true, but in, in most cases it's not true that someone who isn't a B Corp has zero interest in, in right. helping people. It's, it's that it's really addressing a, a structural problem, which is that you know the traditional uh, you know multinational corporation or publicly traded uh, corporation um, has certain limits and obligations to shareholders on what they actually can do legally. Exactly. And so the B Corp model is really interesting because it, it's part of the, the, the structure of the company is to have a social uh, mission as well as a profit-making mission. And then they are certified by a group called B Labs that uh, makes sure that they are uh, meeting these social and environmental uh, needs um, so it has a certification piece, whereas a social enterprise, you might have a social enterprise that has been around for a long time, but is not a B Corp, but it, it does have a social mission. I've heard it, I've heard to it uh, referred to as baking it into the cake as opposed to just dressing up the outside of the cake. I love that. That's great. <laughs> so one of the other... Um, uh, things here that we mentioned, of course, was was the language of sustainability, and the the word sustainable and sustainability as a general topic is is something that um, it's it's become very fashionable, and I and I don't by that I don't mean to imply that nobody uses it genuinely, but it, it I think it's fair to say it's become very fashionable to to say sustainable this and sustainable that, and and it's a word that sort of you know for for people like uh, me and my co-hosts here on the show we sort of continuously wince when we see that because there's <laughs> there's various resolutions of what you might mean and under the hardest definition of sustainable really basically nothing is um so can we just sort of maybe comment on on sort of how are how are these terms being used what is what is being considered sustainable and what types of changes are people making when they talk about being sustainable because sort of for for people that are in the environment space that that word sort of on its own doesn't really have a lot of meaning i agree and i think part of what what we're seeing as companies evolve new ways of, of interacting with society is the development of new language that, that they are using to talk about how they are operating. So, for example, Grayson uses the term um, open hiring, and they also use the concept of path-making. Um, but I agree with you that the term sustainability is, is a bit of a difficult term because I think, in fact, we people have so many definitions of what, what that could mean. So I think that one, one, a couple of helpful ways of thinking about it, I think um, the term resilience is, is an interesting and helpful term, especially when we talk about uh, preparing for, for climate change. So that's, that's a term that, that I think is really helpful, and I work with my students. My students um, come up with, with interesting definitions of, of sustainability in the, the different MBA programs where I teach. And I think that idea of resilience is is a really important aspect of of what we hope companies will will be able to to bring about. I also think the idea of of generative business is is also really wonderful. 
concept of, of, of generating social value, generating jobs, this idea that, that companies should be generative rather than extractive. Uh, great term that Marjorie Kelly um, has has used. So I think these are some of the concepts that that I see around um, sustainability, kind of unpacking it. I also like the term thriveability, although it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, but I agree with you that the term sustainability kind of means many things to to different people, and 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 we could use kind of more uh, meaningful language. Well, and, and I think just from, I mean, from our, uh, from sort of the, you know, if I can speak for environmentalists briefly, not something I'm comfortable doing in general, but I mean, just the idea that it's, I, I, I think it's just that because it, because the word has no sort of inherent value, that it's just really useful that when somebody says, you know, we're, we're going to be sustainable, that I think that environmentalists are just sort of w- w- hope, waiting for and hoping that that sentence gets finished with and what we mean by that is. And, and I think that's something that's, that is in fact happening more and that it's, it's slowly, we're, 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 we're still seeing the word sustainable all the time, but I think more and more we're starting to see and and here's what we mean by that and i think that's really what the the critical part of it is isn't it is to sort of not just say it but tell me what you mean by that and and i am seeing more of that as time goes by absolutely and i think that the interesting trend is that people are using the term sustainability and and to get back to your earlier question bringing social aspects into sustainability so i think that's a, a good trend as well and so one of the other things we mentioned at the, at the beginning, of course, is that you work with uh, companies and governments and UN agencies, and, and that's sort of like a, a laundry list of, of things that uh, of sort of don't tend to make changes very quickly, shall we say. No. <laughs> there tends to be bureaucracy, and they don't tend to be very agile. Um, and it can be a bit, you know, again, sort of speaking from the, the environmentalist on the ground point of view, it can, be, it can be a bit painful sometimes for us to be like, come on, let's go. So um, can you maybe just speak from that point of view a little bit about what is it actually like trying to operate within these giant machines and, and sort of just feeling like maybe you're just one cog? Um, do, do you feel like this, is, this machine is starting to get geared up and get moving? And sort of what's it, what's it like trying to operate within these giant with, uh, entities with so much inertia in them to actually get them to move in the right direction? Well, I have to say that I'm an optimist. Uh, otherwise, I, I couldn't do this work. Uh, but um, having worked for about 25 years in this space with companies, I do see trends moving forward. And a lot of that, um, the way that, that I've worked typically is to help companies to develop uh, codes of conduct or to to work within different frameworks and standards. And so it's exciting for me to see um, the number of companies working with codes and standards increasing and, and the, the complexity of those codes and standards increasing. So you see more and more companies addressing issues of, of human trafficking. So that's something that even, I don't know, five, ten years ago wasn't an issue that, that companies was even on their radar. And I think now there there is a lot of movement for companies to recognize that that they need to take action on on issues like human trafficking. Mm. So I think the awareness level of companies has grown, and um, some of it comes from uh, legally mandated change, and some of it comes from consumer pressure. But as the the third edition of my book comes out, the code book, I do see um, kind of the numbers of of companies that are um, working within the different frameworks is, is... um, increasing, and I think there's more and more guidance from from the UN um, on how 
to address issues like human rights and, and the UN guiding principles on business and human rights is a, a huge contribution in, in that area. So a lot of exciting developments, um, but as you say, it is a slow process and um, it is a process, I think, whereby companies need to develop their own definitions of, of how they are going to operate in sustainability. And oftentimes, uh, companies need help in, in defining that and, and making those kinds of, of alliances. I also think that there's a lot of progress in terms of companies working within industry sectors. So that's quite an exciting thing to see. Oftentimes, companies working with their com- competitors to address some of these uh, major global challenges. So I think that's a, a sign for for um, some optimism. But but it is it is a lot of work, and um, uh, it's not not an easy task. <laughs> it requires an optimist with patience, as, uh, as we clearly are. Absolutely. Uh, so we're speaking. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Deborah Lepsinger, who's uh, uh, written her new book is the Corporate uh, Responsibility Codebook. Uh, a couple of previous books, including Creating Social Value: A Guide for Leaders and Change Makers. Uh, I've got uh, just a moment left here, and I just uh, as, as I as I prefaced at the beginning of when we uh, had you on, I wanted to sort of zoom out a little bit at the end uh, here as well. So just as sort of my my final question uh, comment question as they go uh, would be. <laughs> Was of course that I think you know uh, again from the sort of uh, the quote unquote sort of activist point of view, there's a lot of concern about a lot of these bad actions, and as you said, public pressure. Um, you know, talking about the the side effects of these giant multinational corporations, um, regardless of the the people that sort of work there, where you know we get into you know human rights problems and and uh, sweatshops burning down, and and it's and and I th- and I think there's a very understandable sort of reaction from these companies saying, hey, we're not you know we're not intentionally going at there's not like this company is full of bad people who are all a- actively going out trying to do bad things. It's it's really more of a situation of just that they're giant Godzillas that sort of don't realize that when they turn around, they knock three buildings over kind of thing. And so I, I just think it's, you know, it's sort of, it's, I think it's really important to be to talking with and, and working with these uh, companies to help them do better as much as, uh, as quickly as fa- and fastly as they can. And also not sort of really particularly constructive to, just sort of attempt to demonize them. But that being said, there are just legitimately some bad actors. And, and uh, you know, one I like to pick on all the time, of course, and uh, Kevin's smirking at me, is the, the Nestle uh, mm-hmm. CEO who has this absolutely just blood-curdling opinion that basically we don't, humans don't have a right to life. And by what he, what he actually said was humans don't have a right to have an access to drinking water and that he should be able to sell all water. And, and that's just hideous. Mm-hmm. So I mean, <laughs> so with that sort of with my long comment out of the way, sort of when we're talking about working with these companies, and it, you can you sort of understand from the public's view how there's a lot of people that really just throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know, to hell with all these people. Um, can you from where you're sort of standing in the middle where you're sort of standing in between these two groups, can you maybe offer some advice about how we might be able to constructively move this conversation forward so we can get some stuff done. So maybe we can these companies can do, so, do stuff with the public support rather than seeming like they're they're fighting with each other? I think that's a, an excellent question. And part of my uh, work to, to promote uh, the, the work of, of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, for example, is exactly that, that, it's, um, that is a, a company cannot have a viewpoint like that that uh, really goes against um, what has been evolved by the UN and, and, and so many other frameworks. So I think that's part of what uh, makes uh, the work of, of the UN and, and other organizations that are developing 
um, these kinds of consensus building um, instruments that that access to water is a human right um, and and that that has been established. And so I think it's important to have these kinds of UN frameworks uh, that 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 are established and that we can turn to when when companies make these kinds of, of statements. So um, that's part of uh, the value of, of having um, frameworks around what what are the, the responsibilities of, of companies um, legally. Um, All right. And I was going to say, I guess for, for more detail, people can, uh, can check out either of your previous book or your upcoming uh, book on uh, corporate uh, responsibility. Uh, links to, uh, to those uh, will also be made available on the uh, Today's Show post. So if anyone's interested in, in going and checking those out and uh, looking forward to the, the new book or taking a look at either of the previous ones, they'll be able to do that on the website. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today, Deborah Lepsinger. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. So uh, we're going to go now to our tech for this week. Jason, who is in the booth, will you please inform us what we're going to be listening to for our first music break? Thank you, Darren. Uh, We're going to be listening to a band from Saskatchewan. Uh, They're called The Deep Dark Woods, and this is their song called Red Red Rose. It's been two months and I'm dying inside I wish I had, yes, my bride, the pains and gloom, the things I bleak. I didn't even drink you once last week. I'm sitting here and wondering what to do. Thinking about the night I've been my darling to do. I thought my love had faded and gone. It was me, I was wrong all along. Oh, the rain, it falls, the wind does blow. I gave my love a red, red rose. I wasn't faithful, I treated her poor. There's pain in my heart, there ain't no cure. All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, we have coming up now an interview we uh, we actually did a couple of days ago, so we're we're speaking from a pre-record here today. But uh, we were able to f- to find a time. It was very kind of uh, World Wildlife Fund to uh, work with us uh, to find a time where we could speak to Rachel Kramer, who is the wildlife trafficking expert over at the World Wildlife Fund. Um, and the first question that I asked her was uh, was if she could give us a sense of just at a total level how much pressure are we putting on basically every other living thing on this planet. Some of the successes that have been faced in um, the rhino space are, uh, yeah, so globally, uh, wildlife is being lost at an alarming rate. Rate. Um, due to a variety of factors, including habitat loss, uh, degradation, uh, overfishing in the marine space, and unsustainable trade, as well as other pressures. 
WWF uh, released a Living Planet Index uh, not too long ago that essentially measures trends in thousands of vertebrate species populations around the world, uh, and that index showed a decline of 52% between 1970 and 2010. So in other words, essentially the number of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish that we're seeing across the globe today is about half the size that it was 40 years ago. This is a much more significant decrease than had been previously reported, um, and it is uh, quite alarming for uh, conservation biologists as well as uh, the public at large that benefits from the ecosystem services that we depend on in addition to biodiversity. And the reality, of course, is that losing thousands of species can be hard to explain uh, when your average person probably, you know, if pressed, couldn't off the top of their head name 100 species, much less thousands that we're losing. Uh, this has been easier to talk about a little bit because of the unfortunate nature of the fact that we're starting to lose some really iconic animals. And uh, I asked Rachel to comment on that. Yeah, there are a lot of iconic species that really are um, have been pivotal uh, for a lot of us, inspiring um, next generations to care about conservation, that we are seeing experience drastic population declines uh, in recent years. Uh, we've confronted the illegal wildlife trade for decades, um, but what we're noticing is an unprecedented spike in the volumes of trade in specific species and the commodities uh, that come from them. So uh, roughly the estimate of the, the value of this illegal trade ranges from 7 to $20 billion a year. Um, it, it's a highly lucrative criminal industry, and it's impacting some of the species we care about uh, as flagships for their ecosystems. This includes rhinos, tigers, uh, elephants, uh, vaquita porpoises, uh, a lot of um, really fascinating reptiles and amphibians that are exploited for the uh, illegal pet trade. Um, you name it. Uh, there's a huge spectrum of species that, that we're seeing impacted by illegal wildlife trade today. The future of a lot of these iconic species and is inextricably linked to the communities that, that live around them. What we're seeing uh, in the illegal wildlife trade is increasing involvement of organized criminal networks, um, at times rebel militias like the Lord's Resistance Army that are driving corruption, insecurity, and weakening the application of the rule of law in uh, important areas around the world. So this trade actually not only impacts rhinos and elephants and tigers uh, and other wildlife, it undermines the fundamental efforts that have been made over decades to eliminate poverty and to develop sustainable economic opportunities for rural communities. So this is much more than just a, a wildlife uh, or a, a, an ecosystem issue. It's sort of weird for me to think about people buying exotic animals as like a huge problem because I can't possibly imagine me or anyone I've ever met, you know, wanting to own a tiger or something like that. But th this is a big problem. This is a huge problem that we're facing today. Let me just um, offer you some, some uh, key statistics on poaching uh, sort of by the numbers. Essentially, um, what we're seeing today is um, in the last few years, up to 30,000 elephants being poached uh, in Africa for their ivory. 
global demand has tripled for, for ivory since 1998. Um, the total number of rhinos that were killed just last year in South Africa was over 1,200. Just for comparison, there were 13 poached in 2007. So this indicates a huge spike in uh, specific demand for rhino horn in countries like uh, Vietnam and other parts of Asia. Um, wild tiger populations are down to uh, just about 3,200. Now, by comparison, in the United States alone, we think that there are somewhere in the vicinity of 7,500 tigers in, in captivity, so um, twice the number as currently exist in the wild, according to our biodiversity surveys. And then uh, this trade impacts many other species, like you mentioned, uh, reptiles and amphibians for the pet trade. Um, there's still much work to be done to quantify the numbers that are actually being sourced from the wild in areas like Indonesia and uh, brought to consumers in North America and Asia and elsewhere. Uh, on the marine front, we, we think that 73 million sharks are killed each year for their fins. There have been recent successes um, in uh, advocacy work to inform consumers that shark fin shouldn't be served as a prestige item um, at banquets and in other capacities, um, but that number is still alarming as sort of pivotal predators in marine systems. And then just another species that I'd love to profile are pangolins, which are these beautiful uh, scaly anteaters. Um, there are four species in Africa and four in Asia. And according to seizures that we've tracked just between 2000 and 2012, around 220,000 pangolins were removed from the wild, largely for consumption uh, in Asia of their meat and also for their scales being used in traditional medicines. So this is uh, an alarming trend across the board. How effective is this? Is it, is it simply a matter of the fact that, that people don't know it's a problem and once you inform them they go, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize? Or, is it, or are we really fighting sort of deep-seated, long-held uh, cultural ideals? Or, or you know, what's really at play here and, and how successful have you been um, affecting the demand for these items? So on the demand side, um, and I'll just preface this by saying that um, what we found is that strategic efforts to stop poaching at the source um, aren't enough. You absolutely need to have effective monitoring performed along the trafficking chain to better understand shifts in, in flows of wildlife illegally from source to consumer. And then on the demand side, there's so much work to be done. Um, it, a lot of this is about public education and about inspiring consumers to really think about the origins of the prestige items um, or what other wildlife products that, that are being, um, being used in daily life um, to the extent that they're they're uh, jeopardizing the future of these species in the wild. Can you give us a sense of the impact on the demand side of advocacy? And uh, actually, are attitudes changing around these uh, these demands for illicit products? One example that I would give of some of the successes that have been faced in um, the rhino space are uh, 
sort of the drivers of demand, observing them shift as increased interventions have been made to try and influence consumer decisions. So in the um, 1960s, starting in the 1960s, one of the major uh, drivers of rhino poaching in Africa was the traditional Chinese medicine industry. Then that evolved um, up through the 80s where another driver uh, was the demand for traditional dagger sheaths made from rhino horn in the Middle East. Because of increasing international efforts and consumer-oriented uh, efforts in those spaces, uh, we saw those drivers reduce in terms of the threats uh, posed to wild rhinos. And just in the last several years, we've seen a surge in, in new demand for rhino horn in Vietnam, um, particularly because of misconceptions that horn can be a cure for cancer, that uh, it can be effectively used as a prestige item after partying to uh, try and treat hangovers. Uh, these are new applications that we're, we're seeing that really weren't an issue that, that we had to deal with before um, and are one example of how we've needed to shift in our efforts to understand consumers and influence consumers as trends in consumption are changing. So I would say that there have been important successes in the past, and we're giving everything we have to uh, work on better understanding current threats and emerging threats. And that's one of the reasons wildlife trade monitoring uh, on a regular basis is so essential, is because you do see so many fluctuations in how consumers are demanding wildlife products from around the world. So we just finished talking about the sort of um, uh, demand side more. So on the supply side of it, effectively, we're talking about uh, sort of policing. So is this simply a matter of, you know, we need more uh, cops on the beat? The essential first line of defense um, are rangers, are boots on the ground in parks and protected areas where vital uh, wildlife populations are based. I'll give you just one example. So... In the media of late, um, there's been uh, a lot of coverage of the recent population census figures for elephants that have come out of Tanzania. What we've seen is that in the last five years, Tanzania has lost 60, roughly 65,000 elephants. So that's more than half of their elephant population. But that's not universal across Tanzania. Really, we're seeing key pockets of, of protected areas that have been impacted by poaching most strongly. And then in other parts, one example being the Serengeti, you've seen growth of elephant populations where there is stable uh, and effective uh, management of national parks. And that's due to rangers. That's due to wildlife managers. That's due to protected area managers who are uh, effectively maintaining the areas that, that they're uh, entrusted with and safeguarding populations in those spaces. So really, we have very clear evidence that increasing boots on the ground in vital areas can can have significant impact in helping elephant populations and other species recover when you have uh, 
enough will to to make it happen. Mm. So, Rachel, you're you sound like you're of the uh, pretty hopeful or, or pretty strong opinion, uh, at least, that with enough you know effort and with enough uh, work and cops on the beat and proper regulation and taking this problem seriously, that this is something that this is an issue that we could actually turn around. It's it's realistic that with enough support for this uh, type of issue and for enough funding and for enough cops on the beat, as it were, that we could really make a difference here. I am hopeful that that there will be a future for iconic species that that we care so deeply about. I um, would just share with you uh, a little bit of my background. Uh, I actually grew up in in Africa. Um, I was in West Africa and Cameroon for a few years as a child and experienced the the devastating loss of a subspecies of rhino, the western black rhino, from its its range within West Africa. Uh, Essentially, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were a million black rhinos from four different subspecies that roamed the savannas of Africa. By the early 1950s, because of demand for rhino horn and hunting and agricultural incursion that uh, cleared a lot of historic rhino habitats, we saw major declines. So within 19, sort of the period between 1960 and 1995, 98% of black rhinos in Africa were killed by poachers. Uh, when I, let's see, when I was a child, there were still, you know, uh, uh, there was still a handful of, of western black rhinos in Cameroon, um, and then we experienced sort of the the devastating decline over time to 2011. Um, With no sightings in a decade, the the subspecies was formally declared extinct. I do not want that to be the case um, for my children, that they live in uh, places where there were uh, beautiful and iconic species roaming the landscape. when their children uh, disappear as their adults. So that's one of the key things that drives me to do what I do, is making sure that we're, we're safeguarding the, the integrity of biodiversity on our planet for future generations. All right. So if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Rachel Kramer, who's the wildlife trafficking expert at World Wildlife Fund. Rachel, we just have time for one more question. So uh, we've gotten through what what I think what you just said was was very much where where my values lie, and I think where a lot of our value uh, the values of our listeners lie, which is just that. You know, there's a there's a number of reasons that we should be concerned about this issue. There's a number of reasons why we should be concerned about uh, wiping out species, if for no other reason than just the moral and ethical point of view that what what gives us the right, other than the simple ability, um, to wipe out other species off this planet. But it, I'd like to close on on what I like to call the lowest common denominator argument, just in case the the moral <laughs> argument sort of didn't appeal to you, um, which was uh, to to just talk a little bit about when we're talking about illicit trade, we're we're not, you know, we're not usually. We are in some cases, but we're we're not usually talking about, um, you know, maybe uh, some person in a country somewhere, and, and there is some of this, but you know, who uh, maybe is, you know, doesn't have enough ability to generate income, and so you know, they're doing it because they want to feed their family. But in, in many cases, this is these are organized crime syndicates. This is funding things like terrorism. Can you just get into that a little bit about wh- where some of this money, where a big part of this money is actually going? So one of the the 
major issues here is that a lot of these wildlife products that we're seeing traded in huge volumes today are, in fact, lining the coffers of organized criminal syndicates who are looking for another commodity to trade in that will command high prices on the market. You wouldn't want uh, a drug trafficker living in your neighborhood, fundamentally because narcotics are uh, an illegal commodity and the influence that actors in the illegal space have on communities can be highly destabilizing. It's uh, very similar for for illegal trade in, in wildlife products. Um, we're seeing a lot of the same characters who are uh, trafficking in other commodities getting involved in delivering rhino horn and elephant ivory and pangolin scales to uh, consumer bases. So if, um, if wildlife conservation isn't uh, your uh, primary uh, interest in life, um, I would say that fundamentally maintaining stable communities and respecting the rule of law is is essential for a bright future, and this is very much connected, this issue, to ensuring that that's the case. Well, our current conservative government, it seems to be very concerned about being tough on crime, so maybe we can get some uh, some action on this. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time Uh, again, Rachel. That was uh, Rachel Kramer, wildlife trafficking expert at the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, there and of course, uh, we're going to have some links to the uh, to Rachel's bio and to, to uh, uh, the World Wildlife Fund as well on the website. So if you're interested in learning more about those campaigns or perhaps uh, contributing to the World Wildlife Fund's uh, good work, you will be able to do that on the today's show post at greenmajority.ca. Um, we're going to go now to our second and final music break. And uh, Jason's here again to tell us what we're going to listen to. All right. We're going to go to the other side of the country, to PEI, and uh, a band called Box of Their Horse. Uh, and their song called Romania. Arrived by train, unannounced, returning in vain. She's saying, You're sick and thin. Where have you been? I've been looking for Romania. I've been looking for Romania. I've been looking for Romania. for a girl that I knew once 
We're back. You're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto Live. Or you might be listening online uh, off the website, off iTunes, or maybe on one of our wonderful and very appreciated, very kind community partners across the country. Uh, we're here with Kevin Farmer in studio, who's been uh, quietly waiting for his chance to uh, to take over the microphone. We have two basic issues here that we're going to be uh, uh, digging into, uh, but also I just wanted to quickly mention that uh, Stefan Hostetter has been on uh, vacation. He'll be joining us again next week, and it's Kevin's turn for a vacation, so we're giving a little bit of a break after this. So for the time being, uh, this will be our, our last little segment with uh, Kevin Farmer. And with that, we would like to uh, get your take. I'm very curious. I, I have no idea whatsoever what your uh, interpretation of uh, Harper surprise announcement. Don't worry. Climate change has been solved. Carbon free by 2100. What's your thoughts? Hi, everyone. Um, well, yeah, that's a, that's a historic statement. It really is. And uh, a statement from the, from the G7 to decarbonize the global economy. Um, Honestly, I never thought I'd live to see the day. And actually, I won't. <laughs> uh, because it's an aspirational, toothless, meaningless statement uh, about a commitment to achieve something in 85 years. God willing, I'm not going to live another 85 years, so I will not live to see this day. And uh, people who are touting this as some sign of progress from Harper, no, it's not. This statement, for, this statement would have been much stronger had it not been for the... Uh, obfuscation and sabotage conducted by Stephen Harper and Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of, uh, of Japan. So we're not getting, this is no sign of progress from Harper whatsoever. This is him being dragged, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> or not, you know. Al- but, almost literally. Yeah, yeah almost but literally. He's, he's just being dragged. He had no choice but to capitulate to something, and, and he and, and Abe fought it. Uh, to the extent that this this is this is th- as much as they could be forced to say, and and at best we have this meaningless aspirational statement about decarbonizing the planet, uh, the the uh, the economy in eighty five years. Honestly, if if it takes us eighty five years to um, uh, rid ourselves of carbon, I, I think the planet will have long rid itself of us uh, long before that that goal. E- even if we were to try to achieve it, even if we have, even if we intend to achieve it. Uh, I, I just can't see that timeline as being relevant to our civilization. Well, I think there is, and I, you know, of course, with the smirk, I think you'd probably agree that I think there is some semblance of a victory here, as tiny and virtually meaningless as it is, which is that it's now, at the very least, been so politically toxic to not at least pretend like you're serious about doing something about climate change, that even Harper, who's basically defined his career around pretending this problem isn't real or isn't important, um, we need to even get he to, has to make some statement on it. I, as relevant as it is in the is actually dealing with climate change, I think it's some form of a victory, wouldn't you say? But no, it, we we <laughs> we 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 need to get to zero carbon before we pass the point of no return. Before we let uh, an intolerable warming scenario out of the bottle, and, and I meant to sneak the word genie in there somehow, <laughs> and I, and I didn't. But there's a we're letting a genie out of the bottle, and we can't put it back in, and we don't know exactly where the point of no return is. We just know it's out there, and the IPCC has said we can, you know, dump another uh, thousand gigatons into the atmosphere. That's certainly a generous estimate. So, you know, that even they say it as, you know, this is this is certainly the upper limit. So they're saying, you know, that's at the most we can do if you parse their 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 analysis. 
It's certainly less than that. Some people argue much less than that. The point is we don't know. And, and, and when you aren't sure, you know, how much road is left, you know, or how, how much track is left before the bridge is out, the goal, you, you just have to hit the brakes with all possible speed. And we're not doing that. And, it, and you know, some, some commitment, you know, some aspirational goal for 85 years in the future when people like Michael Mann are saying, you know, we, we're, we're going we're gonna to hit the tipping point in another 20 years. It's just it's just so so out of context with existing scientific reality, and also out of context with basic concepts of risk analysis in public policy. We don't know exactly where the the point of no return is. So, under what circumstances do you err? You know, do you say, "Oh, so we're good." You know, like if you, uncertainty in this case is not a call for inaction; it's a call for greater action. All possible action needs to be taken. One, given the evidence we do have, and two, given the the margin of error on that evidence, the margin of error should not inspire complacency, and it seems to. Yeah. And the other thing, too, of course, uh, the the counterargument to my own sort of somewhat intentionally joking uh, uh, challenge to you there about the positive outlook was that people would say this isn't so much an indication of progress as simply that Harper can't jail, ignore, and intimidate Angela Merkel the same way he can his own citizens. So... (laughs) <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so climate change is solved. So uh, let's move over to uh, the CBC here for the final. Uh, we've got about ten minutes left, and uh, I know we, this is a, a, a this is a, a bit of a drum that we've been beating on for a while here. But new development, of course, um, there was a, a yet another scandal in seemingly the the year of scandal for the CBC, um, with uh, host Evan Solomon being fired after an investigation found he was taking a secret cut of art deals. Um, I actually haven't read up too much on this particular issue, but I am familiar with the general context. But Kevin, if you if you would lead us in, in just explaining what this most recent development is. Well, first, a shout out to the Toronto Star. I lambaste you guys all the time for being lousy on the environment. You do publish great editorials, but you're still publishing letters from paid climate deniers. And frankly, you have no environment section, um, which is just appalling in, in, in today's day and age. But <laughs> you do some really good investigative journalism, and it's been the Toronto Star that outed Evan Solomon, and it was the Toronto Star that outed Leslie Roberts on oh, Global. Was it Global TV? He was the anchor for Global, who was caught uh, giving favorable interviews to clients of a PR firm that he uh, from his role as anchor. Uh, and so good on you guys, um, and well done. And uh, um, so... Uh, uh, on a personal note, I'm just sad and frustrated and exasperated with this weird experiment in social Darwinism that we used to know as Canada. Uh, just too many people in it for themselves and trading on trading on privilege and, and to just better their own circumstances. Yeah, I was a fan of Evan Solomon, so I'm really pissed. Um, and, 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 you know, even among, you know, the rather chummy and obsequious journalists that we get at CBC when they're interviewing you know, politicians and policymakers, they're a little too chummy, without a doubt. And they all it, it, it just, it, it, he was one of the best. And he, he was he was good at making people hew to the point. And he was respectful. And I was kind of a fan of his. And and without a doubt, he, he was just caught red handed. Um, so I, I, I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm sad. And frankly, the culture at CBC seems to stink. And it seems to stink at the top. And I think it's time for Jenny McGuire to step down. She's the GM and editor-in-chief of at CBC. And under her stewardship, the culture at CBC just seems to be rank. Uh, it has festered under her leadership. 
She has been an apologist to some extent. And, uh, and I w- part of me was just frankly surprised that Evan Solomon was fired because really someone has finally breached your ethical standards sufficiently to lose your <laughs> job. Wow. <laughs> you, you know, she, you know, when Peter's, Peter Mansbridge has taken, you know, upwards of tens of thousands of dollars in speaking fees from the oil industry, Rex Murphy, p- potentially into the hundreds of thousands. Um, he, they say, well, he's an independent contractor, so we're, we're okay with him. Well, then when you put that little point of view sign up over him on the national, put the little cap logo beside it or, you know, TM or something, because you're peddling him as a voice of, of CBC. Uh, yeah. Don't, I mean, when we have those, when we have those commercials, right, it'll come up and say, you know, the following is a paid advertisement or, or just put, just post his total remuneration from the oil lobby. Yeah, uh, you know, it's like okay, fine, but you just you know they. But anyway, she has been an apologist. She's she's tried to downplay this. They say, and I don't think this was a statement from her, but someone else at CBC that you know Peter Mansbridge when he's out speaking to these crowds, that's outreach from the CBC. He's contextualizing our journalism. He's he's he, well, then why isn't the CBC paying for that? Mm-hmm. If that's a function of his job, if that's something that the CBC benefits from, uh, if this has a role for us, the public. You know, he's he's he is well paid by the public, the, the nationally funded public broadcaster. So but so the CBC isn't paying for those speeches. The the oil industry is at least some of them. Right. So she's apologized for him. And I mean that in the classical sense of the word. She's apologized for Rex Murphy. The, the statement with Amanda Lang, who is just, you know, up to her neck in conflict of interest, um, is that, well, you know, after we finally got around to putting credible conflict of interest rules in place, we grandfathered in all of her existing speaking engagements. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so, and then just to, just to get a little, little bit of angst and sarcasm out there, I, I've been very, very busy lately, and I'm behind on my episodes of Power and Politics, but it turns out that not last night, but the night before on Wednesday, they had some sort of foot massage back rub interview with Bjorn Lomberg, who oh, is who is man. the self-styled uh, skeptical environmentalist. Uh, he weighs in on climate change issues. He's not a climate scientist. He's a political scientist and an economist. Uh, but he's he's presents himself as some expert on the climate. Bjorn Lomberg is an environmentalist like I'm a fundamentalist. Well, but the thing is, is that he's not credible. He, 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 uh, he's incredibly controversial. His funding for, the, for his organization, the Copenhagen Consensus, I, there's a problem with it. And I'm not going to – I think it's that he doesn't disclose it. Anyway, Google me on that, folks. Uh, but, but this incredibly uncritical interview with him, this guy is a shill and an obfuscator and a denier. And, and I just found myself watching that episode in the context of everything else that's going on at the CBC going, you people really don't get what a conflict of interest is. You just don't seem to get it. This guy has interests in peddling that line. And on this show, not a single credible question was, was lobbed at him to contextualize his paid advocacy that, that serves to sort of blunt efforts. He's no longer an out-and-out denier, it seems, but now he's just trying to sort of continually blunt efforts to take action on climate change. Well, and, and by of source, by contrast, Kevin, uh, not only do you and I not get paid more if climate change action is taken, we do not get paid at all. <laughs> Yeah. But I think more importantly, specifically, is that is that we do not our remuneration or value of or gift in kind or or any type of of positive or negative uh, incentive of any kind 
is in no way strapped to the outcome of things that happen because of things we say. Oh, and, no, and I'm no. not doing that to, to sort of self-aggrandize. My point is, is that you, you should never trust anybody who has a dog in the race of the thing that they're trying to convince you of, ever. I've used the printer at CIUT a couple of times over the last 10 years for non-station printing. Uh, Ken, I hope you're okay with that. I mean, that, does that count as remuneration <laughs> for, for 10 years of activism? Uh, well, no, see, that, in, that's, that's a perfect... <laughs> medium. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've never declared that. <laughs> think of it. Think of it as your remuneration for going on eight years of unpaid labor is forty-five cents worth of black and white f- page printing. <laughs> Congratulations! Don't spend it all in one place. Yeah, I recycled all of that paper, <laughs> <laughs> and all of that paper was recycled. <laughs> Kevin printed on both sides of every single one of those pieces of paper. All right, we've got <laughs> we've got about a minute left, and uh, 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 and we're gonna we're gonna miss you on your on your brief vacation here. Do you have any uh, do a final word of wisdom here for uh, for this week's show, Kevin? Yeah, you know, people are tuning out government, and I don't blame them. And, and you and I know all kinds of people that are engaged in social entrepreneurialism because they, people don't see avenues to, be, to make positive change in the world. So they're trying to make them. And they're trying, everyone's trying to simply be the change they want to see in the world. And I think that's a great idea. But I also don't think it's working. And I think when it comes to issues that require collective effort, this is not going to work. And climate change is one of those issues. I think sustainability is one of those issues. We would not have credibly tried to mount a, a World War II, a war effort in World War II by just saying, let's all be the soldier we want to see in the field. It just, <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened. So let's all be the change we want to see in the world. But there's an election coming up, folks. It, you need to vote the change you want to see in the world. And you need to demand that candidates are out there being responsible on, on environmental and social sustainability. That's it. That's the Green Majority for this week. See everybody good next week. Have a good Green Week.